Hello and welcome to Retrospecticus, a Simpsons and History podcast. You're listening to episode 61, A Streetcar Named Sinead O'Connor. Hey, hey, listeners. I'm Gareth Hirons. And I'm Tom Williamson. And welcome to Retrospecticus, the Simpsons of modern history together at last. In each episode, we'll discuss an episode of The Simpsons and a major historical happening from the time the episode first aired in the US. You'll go where we go. Bottle who we bottle. Smell like streep for cheap when we smell like streep for cheap. And today I'll be talking about Season 4, Episode 2, A Streetcar Named Marge, which first aired on October 1st, 1992. And I'm going to be talking about Sinead O'Connor, because on October 3rd, 1992... Two days after A Streetcar Named Marge first aired, she made an appearance on NBC's Saturday Night Live, where she ripped up a picture of Pope John Paul II. If you'd like to give us the Spanish exposition, you can tweet us at underscore retrospecticus. Don't forget the underscore, because we certainly can't. Or send us an eel to podcast at retrospecticus.org. Tom, drunk anything good recently? I have. I would like to give a shout-out to the Top Rope Brewery of Liverpool. We just had the Easter weekend. I put out a little shout out to see if anyone could recommend a decent local brewery. Gav recommended Top Rope and I bought a mini keg of their stout and it was delicious. Absolutely perfect for the Easter weekend. So cheers, guys. That's Top Rope Brewery getting a free plug from us. Fantastic brewery. Try their Coldstone Cream Austin range of uh, ice cream pale ales. Nice. But before we descend into uh, self-parody and or demand payment from them, uh, let's return to October the 1st, 1992. But Gareth, I hear you cry. What was the UK number one that week? It's still Ebenezer Good. So let's talk about number two, Dr. Alban with It's My Life. Alban Uzoma Nwapa, probably all pronounced wrong by me there, was born in 1957 in Ogota, Nigeria but moved to Sweden to study dentistry, whilst DJing in Stockholm to fund said studies. Eventually, he met producer Dennis, with a Z, Pop, a name that absolutely fills you with confidence there, (laughs) and rapper Layla Kay, and they started making records that were very popular on the continent, although Alban had apparently already opened his own dental practice by then. Hence the Doctor. It's My Life is his biggest and most well-remembered hit, Kept off number one here by the aforementioned Shaman, but hitting the top spot in Sweden, Germany, Belgium, Austria and the Netherlands. And soundtracking a Tampax advert across Europe, including the UK, for what appeared to be 3,000 or so years. Alban remained pretty relevant in the European charts until the late 90s and still pops up on occasion, having released two singles in 2020 alone. Fun fact. When I very briefly studied sound engineering at college, One of my tutors swore blind that he made this whole record himself. He did not. He later disappeared, apparently along with a fair bit of the college's equipment. The US viewership for this episode was a Nielsen of 11.8, approximately 11 million viewing households, 32nd for the week and second on Fox after married with children. The production number is 8F18, meaning it's another holdover from last season, but that's it, and we're back into season 4 proper from the next episode. The credited writer is Jeff Martin, who we discussed in episode 19, Dead Webpage Society. 
listeners Katie Jarman and Brendan Barker both brought something to my attention recently regarding Jeff Martin, and indeed his daughter, Samantha Martin, as they co-wrote an episode of The Simpsons together. It was Season 32, Episode 14, Yokel Hero, which aired in early March this year. It's a Cletus Gets Famous episode, so enjoyment may vary, shall we say. Samantha, as it turns out, was the inspiration for Baby on Board, from Season 5, Episode 1, Homer's Barbershop Quartet, which was written by Jeff with an actual barbershop quartet called the Dapper Dans. That episode was actually made in Season 4's production block, so we're not far off it now. The father-daughter writing team were accompanied by Samantha's two-week-old daughter, Cleo, so we know what to expect in 28 years' time. The chalkboard gag is, my name is not Dr. Death. No, that's Steve Williams. I get one wrestling reference every week. You, you, you have to allow me that. <laughs> God, that's what that was. Okay. Uh, the couch gag is, the couch becomes what I have described as a weird tentacled monster thing and eats or kind of more absorbs the family. We'll see that a couple of times in the coming years. But what actually happens in the episode? Well, the Simpsons are going to beautiful Lachlan, Nevada for the Miss American Girl pageant, hosted by Troy McClure, who this time you may not remember from anything, apparently. That's on the telly, anyway. But in real life, Marge is leaving the family with some low-cal TV dinners. Krusty brand slender vittles, no less. As she goes off to audition for a musical version of A Streetcar Named Desire thus announcing the entire plot of the episode in the first 30 or so seconds. Neat. But first, we meet the panel of judges for Miss American Girl. Tom, can you name them all and their stated professions? Right, well, there's skincare consultant Rowena. Yes. Syndicated columnist Sam Bloke, I can't remember his name. Okay, I've got William F. George down for William, that. William F. George, okay. Uh, token black guy, Dredrick Tatum. And Mr. Boswell, who makes worse dress lists or something. Have I yeah. missed him? Yeah, no, that, that, that's the whole thing. William F. George is such a forgettable name. I think I'm just going to give you full marks for that. It's, um, I also would have accepted world heavyweight boxing champion for Dredrick Taketon, but as as you state, he is literally described as token black panelist. So <laughs> the rest of the family aren't even slightly interested in Marge's news, as is tradition, including Lisa, who is slightly out of character in that respect. But off she eventually goes, and a cast of Springfield's finest, very much in quotes, has assembled to try out as well under the watchful, stressful eye of director Llewellyn Sinclair, who's building up to a fourth heart attack, and yet is still preferable to Mr. Takahashi, who teaches calligraphy. A permanently off-screen character that I wish we'd met at some stage. <laughs> the prospective cast includes one Ned Flanders, looking to build on his previous run as Blanche, but immediately picked as Stanley due to his physique. There's also Chief Wiggum, Otto, Helen Lovejoy, Apu, and Lionel Hutz, who is also representing everyone who didn't get a part in a class-action lawsuit against the director. Marge is initially rejected, until Sinclair hears her dejected telephone call back to her family, and realises that her crushed spirit will give her the necessary insight to bring the fading southern belle and fish out of water in a strange city that is Blanche to vivid life. At breakfast the next day, nobody's interested again. 
due to the lack of jive-talking robots and frontal nudity. And at rehearsals, Maggie is disruptive, so Sinclair recommends his sister's daycare centre, the Ayn Rand School for Tots, a somewhat authoritarian establishment, but also the only daycare in town that isn't under investigation. Unfortunately, they're also a pacifier-free zone, so Maggie is Son's dummy for the first considerable time in the show's history. Marge can't summon the anger necessary for a key scene, but finds it soon enough when she doesn't receive any support from Homer, by picturing him as Stanley instead. And the babies in daycare attempt a stunning liberation of the pacifiers that unfortunately fails, and lands Maggie in solitary confinement. Bart and Lisa finally start supporting Marge by speaking in accents at the dinner table as opening night approaches, but Homer is still put out by having to do things for himself, including opening his own pudding. And he's proved semi-right as, disaster, the ring comes off his pudding can, and there's nary a penknife in sight. As Marge gets yet more agitated, Homer simply cannot bring himself to feign interest in a very early appearance of jerk-ass Homer. But the tide starts to turn for both of our protagonists, as Maggie's second attempt at grabbing the pacifiers is successful, leading Homer to the eerie sight of a phalanx of babies sucking their dummies in unison. And the musical, which we do see a fair chunk of, probably four whole minutes of the episode, so effectively a fifth of it, but I'm basically skipping here because it loses a lot in description, is a rousing success, diminished for Marge when she sees an apparently bored Homer not paying the proper attention. However, after the play, Homer explains that he had been paying attention and was actually moved by Blanche's plight. And Marge and Homer, perhaps for the first time ever, have a conversation about art and feelings. I like this one. It's kind of strangely structured. They simply announce what they're going to do at the start of the show, and then it happens. And like I say, there's that whole there's the whole musical section, which is good, but I couldn't really sum it up for you. Well, I'd say a plot. There's Marge being in the musical version of a streetcar named Desire. B plot is Maggie in a daycare centre. The one thing I would say about the subplot is that it seems to have inspired Disney to do a number of relatively uh, good silent shorts with Maggie in recent years. But this is this is kind of the original, and as, as we'll find out, it's very heavily based on something else. Mm. But firstly, let's have a character debut. Llewellyn Sinclair, played masterfully as always by John Lovitz, who is always welcome when he's not playing Artie Ziff to rapidly diminishing returns in later seasons. He is a continually flustered and dissatisfied perfectionist who has found an uncomfortable level in amateur theatre, where he simply cannot achieve the effects he's after, but is still oddly proud of his achievements, including justifying his reducing a fourth grade class to tears with the evidence of his review. Play enjoyed by all. By all. Llewellyn will appear a few more times in the show, most notably in season 29, episode 14, Fears of a Clown, where he directs Krusty the Clown's attempt at being a legitimate theatre actor in The Salesman's Bad Day, adapted from Death of a Salesman as they couldn't get the rights. And in season 30, episode 9, Dadicus Finch, directing a play at the elementary school. Now, in this episode, we also meet his sister, who is only ever referred to as Miss Sinclair. Uh, she is played somewhat less memorably, but certainly effectively enough, by John Lovitz again. She will return in the 2012 Maggie Simpson short film, The Longest Daycare. 
And that takes us straight to the did you knows. Did you know that Slender Vittles, the name of the TV dinners, is a reference to Tender Vittles, a popular US cat food that has also been referenced by Futurama and one of my favourite adult swim offerings, the Venture Brothers. The Ayn Rand School for Tots is an obvious reference to the writer and objectivist Ayn Rand, who I really don't know very much about, but enough to know that the A is A poster in the daycare is a reference to the law of identity, as referenced in Rand's apparently very boring novel Atlas Shrugged, and that the Fountainhead Diet, as read by Ms. Sinclair, is a reference to Rand's first major success, a novel called The Fountainhead. The title was also used by the Blue Tones for a song from their 1996 debut album, Expecting to Fly. Britpop references. I also get one every episode. <laughs> and the centre is a gathering point for pop culture references, it would seem, as the efforts to retrieve the pacifiers are taken from the 1963 film The Great Escape, including the music used during those sequences, which you might recognise from England football fans and gammons. <laughs> Maggie is also taken to solitary confinement and bounces a ball to amuse herself, like Steve McQueen does in the film. One assumes she made a game of it, seeing how many times she could bounce the ball in an hour, then trying to break that record. And in a rare triple whammy, the scene where the babies eerily eye the family is a reference to Alfred Hitchcock's 1963 film The Birds, underscored by a cameo by Hitchcock himself walking his dogs past the daycare centre as the family leave. Bart lapses into Nadsat at the dinner table, the fictional Russian-tinged street slang used in Anthony Burgess's 1962 novel A Clockwork Orange, which has clearly had an effect on Bart's formative years. Not only will he be seen dressed as Malcolm McDowell's portrayal of the lead character Alex in the 1971 feature film adaptation in Season 4, Episode 5, Treehouse of Horror 3. Oh, that's coming up in like three episodes. Can't wait for that. But in Season 27, Episode 12, Much Are Poo About Something, Bart's descent into evil is marked by his right-hand eyelashes becoming more prominent and a sting of the film's stunning electronic soundtrack by Wendy Carlos. As Homer laments buying Bart the film on video for his fifth birthday, thinking it would help him learn to tell the time. <laughs> on our last episode, we discussed The Simpsons upsetting Brazil. Well, with this one, they've managed to upset New Orleans. Perhaps due to that whole song they have, where they refer to the city as the home of pirates, drunks and whores. This was intended to be a parody of a similar song in the musical Sweeney Todd, which did a similar job on London. And this was apparently meant to be underscored by two Cajun characters leaving the theatre in disgust. But no one could do the accent, and I'm not actually sure that would have helped much overall. A partial apology was issued via the following episode's chalkboard gag, but we'll get to that next time. The UK's own Channel 4 then managed to court controversy, largely by accident, 13 years later in September 2005, when they showed this episode in the immediate aftermath of Hurricane Katrina's devastation of New Orleans, prompting complaints to Ofcom and an on-air apology. And finally, I did streetcar for my English A-level and was unable to take it seriously thanks to this episode. Due to my over-familiarity with the piece, I do feel like the jokes around the play itself hit a bit better for me, including Flanders' hilarious unsuitability to play brutish, toxic male Stanley, Homer shouting for Marge outside Flanders' window mirroring a similar scene with Stanley and Stella, Arpu's delivery boy getting a song, despite the part being blink and you'll miss it in the play, 
And the idea that the play would end with a rousing song and dance number that entirely misses the point of the narrative. (laughs) But since this was back in the spotty days of terrestrial airings, it seemed none of my peers had seen it, which left me in the frustrating position of being loaded with quotes and memes and unable to find a willing audience. However, these days everyone's clamouring for their memes. So let's get straight into memeable moments. Yes, now... Unfortunately, there's hardly any here. I think this might be the least memeable episode possibly ever, because I've got two and they're not very good. So there's right at the top where Troy McClure is advertising Meryl Streep's versatility, and he comes up with the line, smell like Streep, for cheap, (laughs) which is possibly one of my favourite Troy McClure lines. And then, as we've already alluded to, Homer trying to open his can of pudding, the ring comes off, he gives a little scream, and then laments, oh no, my pudding is trapped forever. (laughs) However, this isn't where the line, the ring came off my pudding can, comes from. That's a later one, that's during the monorail episode, and Chief Wiggum says it. But that is it for memes. So what you're saying is I I should never bother writing a proper segue between um, did you know and memeable moments again? It, it seems to be a curse. Okay, okay. Well, well, you can definitely you can definitely do one for next week because because the next episode is Home of the Heretic. Oh, and that's absolutely crammed. Fairly ripped with uh, with memes there. Yeah. Speaking of ripping. <laughs> <laughs> See, that one wasn't even planned. Completely off the cuff. Fantastic. Um, we are on to Sinead O'Connor. We are indeed. So my bit. Now, fair warning, I'm going to be talking about some fairly heavy stuff because I'm going to be talking about the Catholic Church and child abuse and all that nastiness. So if you don't want to hear about it, probably best switch off now. But if you're still here, great. So picture the scene. It's Saturday. October 3rd, 1992. Imagine you're a teenager, probably part of a nuclear family somewhere in the USA. You're sitting on your sofa. You've eaten your Slender Littles TV dinner with peas and the peach cobbler. Oh, that's a different thing, isn't it? And you've settled in to watch some Saturday night TV. Chances are you'll be staying up late to watch NBC's Saturday Night Live, their flagship comedy variety show. Now, Saturday Night Live has been a staple of American TV for a long time, so long that I'm surprised that it hasn't been knocked down and replaced by a car park. It was created by Lorne Michaels, as in an interview with Lorne Michaels. Wait, that's no good. And the premiere was hosted by George Carlin back on October 11th, 1975. Many of its original cast would go on to become legends of comedy, including Dan Aykroyd, John Belushi, George Coe, and of course, Chevy Chase. Now, Chevy Chase became hot property in Hollywood, and he quit Saturday Night Live at the start of the second season, to be replaced by then-unknown actor Bill Murray. Now, Murray had a hard time filling Chase's shoes, and in 1978, Chase returned as a guest host. The resentment Bill Murray felt towards Chevy Chase was quite something. Backstage, they started to argue. Murray knew that Chase was having marital problems, and he shouted to him across the studio, Go your wife, she needs it. Chase retorted with something along the lines of, Nice face, did Neil Armstrong land on it? They had an actual physical fight coming to blows before they were separated by John Belushi. I mean, I would have loved to have seen that. That That sounds extraordinary. 
But after they had this fight, Chase went on stage and delivered his opening monologue as if nothing had happened. And the show proved to be a platform for a whole raft of comic talent. One recurring sketch featured Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi in their roles as the Blues Brothers. Of course, this became a cult classic film in 1980. And the show has various ties to The Simpsons. In 1986, Phil Hartman joined the cast, staying for eight seasons. He was famed for his impressions, and his vocal talents landed him the role of Lionel Hutz back in 1991 in the episode Bart Gets Hit by a Car, which we covered in episode 23, Bart Gets Hit by the Gulf War. He would go on to play Troy McClure, which apparently was a role he absolutely loved, and he would nail his lines first time, apparently. Smell like Streep for cheap. In amongst all the sketches and general hilarity of the October 3rd, 1992 show, they cut to a performance by one Sinead O'Connor. Now, she was riding high on the back of the global smash Nothing Compares to You, which we talked about back in episode four. There's no disgrace like Manuel Noriega. However, wow, was it that long ago? Yeah. Oh, seems yeah, like only yesterday. <laughs> so her choice of song was rather strange right off the bat. Rather than sing something from her album Am I Not Your Girl, which she was meant to be promoting at the time, she stood amongst lit candles and sang an a cappella version of Bob Marley's War. I'll give you a snippet of the lyrics. I, w- I won't try and sing it, though. Until the philosophy, which holds one race superior and another inferior, is finally and permanently discredited and abandoned everywhere is war. You know, it's, 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 it's a very strong, it's a very powerful, very powerful anti-discrimination message. So as the song went on, she changed some of the lyrics to make them about child abuse. As she sung the last few bars, she went off script and produced a photo of Pope John Paul II. She then proceeded to hold the photo in front of the camera and rip it to pieces. She proclaimed, fight the real enemy, then blew out the candles. In the studio, there was silence. The audience made no noise whatsoever. Executive producer Lorne Michaels ordered that the applause sign wasn't used. Now, in rehearsals, Sinead O'Connor had produced a photo of a refugee child in order to illustrate her point. Her performance gave NBC a dilemma. Knowing that she went off script and how offensive some people would find it, they had the option to drop it from the broadcast an hour later. In case you're not familiar with this idea, allow me to explain. The mainland USA uses four time zones. From east to west, they're eastern, central, mountain and Pacific. Now, things vary a bit for daylight savings, but as a rule, they go back an hour every time. Saturday Night Live is broadcast live from New York. If it goes out there at 11.30pm, then that's 8.30pm in California. So to avoid the problem of pre-watershed broadcast, they put out the show again an hour later. This gives them the chance to edit things if they want to. But with Sinead O'Connor's performance, they didn't. So good on them there. As you might imagine, the stunt received numerous complaints, with NBC recording over a thousand angry phone calls in the following week. On the next show, the host Joe Pesci, famous for his role in Goodfellas and providing inspiration for the mobster character Louie in The Simpsons, don't you please, I just ate a whole plate of dingamagoo. He dedicated his opening monologue to Sinead O'Connor's actions. He presented the photograph of the Pope again, having had it stuck back together. 
he did a whole, it shouldn't bother me, but it does thing. He said, it wasn't my show, but if it was, I'd have given her such a smack. I'd have grabbed her by her eyebrows. So, you know, following up a protest against the evils of the Catholic Church with a casual threat of violence towards a woman, which is nice. And especially the grabber by her eyebrows line. He was, he meant to say, I'd grab her by her hair, but of course, Sinead O'Connor didn't have any hair. And if you know why she doesn't have any hair, then you'll know that that's, that's a really nasty thing to say, uh, because she suffered a lot of, uh, abuse because she was perceived to be, uh, pretty. So she shaved, she shaved her hair off. So, so she wouldn't be perceived as being pretty. And the public backlash against Sinead O'Connor was pretty much immediate. The New York Daily News ran with the headline, Holy Terror, on its front page. Sales of her records plummeted. And in a publicity stunt by the woefully named National Ethical Coalition of Organizations, they crushed around 200 of her albums in front of the offices of Chrysalis Records with a steamroller. Where did they get a steamroller? I don't get how that that spirals out of control to that that extent like it's like with the the beatles burnings like you can see where people are going to get fire from you know it's a uh, it's it, it's everywhere if you if you look hard enough but a steamroller a steamroller for Sinead O'Connor albums i don't know but something about that just strikes me as delightfully absurd well it was a bit absurd yeah but um Apparently there were a hundred people watching and they sort of applauded gently when the steamroller crushed everything. It was a little bit pathetic, really. Just two weeks after the show, she made an appearance at the Bob Dylan 30th Anniversary Tribute Concert at Madison Square Garden to perform the song I Believe in You. Chris Christopherson introduced her with the words, All right, I've got to tell you, I'm real proud to introduce this next artist whose name has become synonymous with courage and integrity. Ladies and gentlemen, Sinead O'Connor. After she was introduced, she was met with cheers and boos in more or less equal measure. Before long, the cheers died down and the boos became dominant. She stood at the front of the stage, ready to perform, but the booing wouldn't stop. Chris Christopherson came back out, put his arm around her and told her, don't let the bastards get you down, to which she replied, I'm not down. The pianist started to play, but Sinead O'Connor waved her arms to stop him, then signalled that she wanted her microphone turned up. She then ripped out her earpiece and blasted out a rendition of War, the very song she sang on Saturday Night Live, keeping her own lyrics. After she sang the part about child abuse, she stopped, stared down the audience for a few seconds, then left the stage to a chorus of boos and people throwing things at her. She was comforted by Chris Christopherson and was physically sick before leaving the stage. Now, one notable celebrity took offence to Sinead O'Connor's protest, and that was Madonna. She criticised her in the press, and at the end of her own appearance on Saturday Night Live, where she sung her latest single, Bad Girl, she produced a photo of Joey Putafuco, a man who had been having an affair with a minor, Amy Fisher. The case made headline news in the States when Amy Fisher confronted Joey Putafuco's wife, Mary Jo, and shot her in the face. Madonna ripped up his picture and said, fight the real enemy. So, yeah, going for one particular individual, rather than the head of a huge organisation. What's that thing about the head of a snake again? Yes. Yes. So, on the face of it, any protest directed against Pope John Paul II seems misplaced. I mean, he was one of the good guys, right? Well, let's take a look at his history and his record, shall we? Does that so start we- with his goalkeeping career? Or- ah, we'll get there. We'll get there. So, before becoming Pope, he had a name which I've had to spell out 
phonetically. Before becoming Pope, he had the name Karol Joseph Wojtyla, and he was born and raised in Poland. He was pretty sporting and was keen on football, where he played as a goalkeeper. In time-honoured tradition, I'm going to do it. I'm going to say it. He was good on crosses. Right. He had a pretty tough upbringing, with his mother dying when he was eight, and his elder brother, who was a doctor, dying of scarlet fever shortly afterwards. He moved to Krakow with his father and enrolled in university, where he learned a whole bunch of languages up to 15. Then the Nazis invaded Poland and closed the university, requiring all students to work. While doing various manual jobs, he suffered a fractured skull after being struck by a tram, and he got hit by a lorry while working in a quarry, leaving him with a permanent stoop. His father died of a heart attack in 1941, leaving him as the only surviving member of his family. He entered the priesthood, joining an underground seminary run by the Archbishop of Krakow. Towards the end of the war, he was hit by a German truck and spent two weeks in hospital with concussion. His early life, it sounds like a Mr. Magoo cartoon. <laughs> Him just being, being hit by everything, basically. He did have a Magooish uh, aspect to him. Yeah, yeah. yeah there, there you go. I'm not going to get in any trouble there suggesting that Pope John Paul II was like Mr. Magoo. <laughs> I'll cut that bit out. Right. No, Tom, put that photo of him down. <laughs> so then on August the 6th 1944 the Nazis carried out what has become known as Black Sunday in Krakow the area was going through a Polish uprising and to contain it the Nazis arrested as many young men as they could find Wojtyla avoided them by hiding in his uncle's basement while the Nazis searched for rooms above the Nazis eventually fled the city on January the 17th 1945 and Wojtyla is credited with helping many Jewish people escape Nazi persecution, and he was ordained as a priest the next year. Over the years, he worked his way up the ranks of the Catholic hierarchy, taking part in the Second Vatican Council in 1962, being made Bishop of Krakow in 1964, and becoming a cardinal in 1967. So, as a cardinal, he was entitled to vote for the next pope when the opportunity arose. That came around in 1978, the year of the three popes. After 15 years as pope, Paul VI died of a heart attack at the age of 80. As was customary, the papal conclave met to decide on his successor. After three lots of black smoke, white smoke came from the chimney of the Sistine Chapel to signal that a new pope had been elected. That was Cardinal Albino Luciani, who took the name John Paul I, naming himself after his predecessors. His papacy lasted just a little longer than the presidency of William Henry Harrison. After 33 days in the role, John Paul I was found dead in his bed, suspected of having had a heart attack during the night. Now, there are lots of juicy, unsubstantiated conspiracy theories around the death of John Paul I that involve Freemasons, but we won't go into them here. It's partly inspired the Freemasons around the country line. The death of John Paul I necessitated another Vatican conclave to decide a successor. Wojtyla was put forward as a second compromise candidate and was elected to the papacy after eight ballots. He became the first non-Italian pope for over 450 years, and he signalled early on that he was going to be a bit more chilled out, shall we say, than his predecessors. In his opening address at the Vatican, he told people he was speaking to them in Italian, and if he made a mistake, he wanted to be corrected. 
However, he deliberately mispronounced the Italian for corrected. Lol. It's fair to say that the old Johnny P had a very eventful papacy. Of course, he became Pope during the Cold War, back when Germany was divided between East and West, and his own home country of Poland was under Soviet domination. One of the things that he was known for was drawing large crowds in Catholic-majority countries, and regimes tended to fall within years of one of his visits. This happened in Chile, where he met various opposition leaders who were opposed to the dictatorship of General Pinochet. While on the trip, Pinochet tripped him into appearing at a balcony, making the Pope furious. He visited Haiti in 1983 and spoke out against the dictatorship of Jean-Claude Baby Doc Duvalier, who we talked about in episode 26, Homer versus Lisa and John Bertrand Aristide. In 1986, there was a popular uprising and Duvalier was ousted from power. He also paid a visit to Paraguayan dictator Alfredo Stroessner in 1988, one year before he was ousted from power in a military coup. So I personally would argue that John Paul II did a lot of good, but he was also responsible for a lot of bad things too. Of course, he upheld Catholic doctrine on social issues like abortion and gay rights, not really budging there. Now, Sinead O'Connor was protesting against child abuse perpetrated by the Catholic Church. And of course, she was right. She had first-hand experience of it. At the age of 15, she was caught shoplifting and she played truant from school, so she was sent to a Magdalene asylum for 18 months. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, these institutions, more commonly known as Magdalene laundries, were set up in Ireland by the Catholic Church in the late 18th century. Run by nuns, their purpose was to help what they called fallen women. The idea that these women, who were mostly sex workers and women who had children out of wedlock, would be housed there and work in the laundries as a way of teaching them discipline and to be closer to God. In reality, it was free labour. The women were not paid for what they did. Even the Irish government bought into it, with institutions such as the army using the laundry services. All sorts of abuse happened in these places, as documented in the 1998 film Sex in a Cold Climate. Women who gave birth in Magdalene laundries were forced to give up their children for adoption. This happened to Philomena Lee, whose story is told in the film Philomena, starring Steve Coogan and Judy Dench. I'd recommend it, it's very good. The issue of the Magdalene Laundries came to a head in Ireland in 1993 when the Sisters of Our Lady of Charity decided to sell some of their land to cover debts incurred by losses they'd made on the stock market. A bunch of nuns had an investment fund, which is, which is fun. When the developers began to dig the site up, they made an unnerving discovery. A mass grave. Within, they found the bodies of 155 women who had simply been discarded. Record-keeping at the laundry was, was practically non-existent during the 20th century, and the nuns who ran them were obviously pretty keen to work in secrecy. The discovery shocked Ireland, and eventually the laundries were closed down. A report by the Irish Times revealed a long list of customers of laundries, including the Guinness Brewery and the Bank of Ireland. In 2013, the Taoiseach Enda Kenny f- finally issued a formal government apology and announced a compensation programme. But as for Pope John Paul II, what did he know about the abuse going on in the Catholic Church that Sinead O'Connor was highlighting? Well, as it turns out, quite a lot. In 1984, the American priest Thomas Doyle wrote a memo to the Vatican warning of the sexual abuses committed by the clergy. 
The next year, he wrote a 93-page report on the problem and sent it to every bishop in the USA. Then, in 1989, still three years before Sinead O'Connor's appearance on Saturday Night Live, the US Conference of Bishops sent a delegation to Rome seeking a streamlined process for defrocking paedophile priests. The Pope refused them, and it wasn't until 2002, in the final years of his life, that John Paul II finally acknowledged the horrors that had happened under his watch. To date, compensation paid out to abuse victims by the Catholic Church totals over $3 billion in the USA alone. And the Church was complicit in moving paedophile priests from parish to parish, allowing more abuse to take place. So what should we make of Sinead O'Connor's actions on October 3, 1992, two days after a streetcar named Marge was first aired? Well, I want to consider the idea of speaking truth to power. There can be no doubt whatsoever that Sinead O'Connor was absolutely right. Child abuse was being committed by members of the Catholic Church on a grand scale, and John Paul II at best turned a blind eye and at worst dug his heels in. Sinead O'Connor spoke the truth and spoke it to one of the most powerful people on the planet at great cost to herself. She suffered for her actions. Everyone who boycotted her records, everyone who said they would give her a smack, should feel nothing but the deepest shame. And I'll get off my soapbox now. <laughs> oh no, by all, by all means remain there. The soap, soapbox is the correct position for this one, I think. Mm. Which uh, leaves me in a, a slight quandary, because uh, Sinead O'Connor, as far as I can tell, has never been in The Simpsons. But the Pope? Well, he's all over it. And not just the fake one that's briefly mentioned, who can be recognised by his high-top sneakers and incredibly foul mouth. <laughs> Technically, we've already seen his first appearance, as he was mentioned as being in the crowd for the unveiling of Powell Motors' infamous Homer in Season 2, Episode 15, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? He'll be seen telling an aide to keep an eye on the whole angel skeleton foretelling the apocalypse situation in Springfield in Season 9, Episode 8, Lisa the Skeptic, and being told to lay off the chili by a doctor at the Mayo Clinic in Season 11, Episode 12, The Mansion Family. His latest appearance, that's the Pope, obviously not Pope John Paul II, who was well dead by then, is a brief cameo in Season 29, Episode 10, Haw Haw Land, in which guest star Ed Sheeran indirectly ruins another episode of a huge TV series by clearly just being himself, which is not really his fault, just very poor casting and misguided direction, I would say. And since we can go no lower than an Ed Sheeran guest appearance... Don't forget you can find us at retrospecticus.org and on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And you can follow us on Twitter at underscore retrospecticus. Email us at podcast at retrospecticus.org and check out our 90s playlist on Spotify. If you like what we're doing, please leave us a preferably five-star review anywhere you possibly can. Thanks for listening. Bye.